Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last couple of months. And a bit has happened because we've had the ATS and there were big papers published around that. We've got the sepsis papers, angiotensin 2 for vasodilatory shock, emergency care mandated in New York. We've got salt and the use of saline versus buffered solution for contrast-induced renal injury. We've got the dexmedetomidine and ventilation and sepsis. We've got bystander CPR and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. 50 years of ARDS research and the ability of doctors and nurses in intensive care to predict outcome. So, let's get going. Let's start with sepsis. In the New England Journal of Medicine, we had time to treatment and mortality during mandated emergency care for sepsis. So in 2013, New York began requiring hospitals to follow protocols for the early identification and treatment of sepsis. Although protocols could be tailored by each hospital, all the protocols were required to include some common components. So there was a three-hour bundle consisting of receipt of the following care within three hours, and that was a blood culture before the administration of antibiotics, a serum lactate, and the administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics. There was a six-hour bundle, which included giving 30 mils per kilo of IV fluids if patients were hypotensive or had a serum lactate greater than four, the initiation of vasopressors for refractory hypotension, and the re-measurement of serum lactate within six hours after the initiation of the protocol. So what effect did this mandated care have? So this retrospective study examined patient-level data from the New York City sepsis hospital database of patients with sepsis and septic shock for 185 hospitals from the 1st of April 2014 to the 30th of June 2016. They looked at patients with community-acquired sepsis and three-hour bundle initiated within six hours of arriving in the ED and they excluded outliers who did not have the three-hour protocol completed by 12 hours. They report that 83% of 49,500 eligible patients had their three-hour bundle completed within three hours. The median time to completion of the three-hour bundle was 1.3 hours. The median time to broad-spectrum antibiotics was 0.9 of an hour and for 30 mils per kilo fluid was 2.5 hours. Multivariate analysis revealed each hour of time to completion of three-hour bundle was associated with a higher mortality with an odds ratio of death of 1.04 per hour. Bundle completion for the period for the hours 3 to 12, there was a 14% increase in odds of in-hospital death. And these results were similar for antibiotics alone when they were taken out of the, separated from the rest of the bundle. So the odds of death per hour and for the 3 to 12 hour period. These associations appeared to be stronger among patients who were receiving vasopressors and in patients who had IV fluids completed, the time to completion of IV fluids in the first 12 hours was not associated 
with altered odds of mortality. So overall, this large database study reports high levels of compliance with the mandated sepsis bundle in New York City and an association between earlier three-hour bundle delivery and survival. The authors believe the lack of association between the timing of fluid administration and survival should be interpreted with caution, as this is one of the factors that is most open to confounding, that is, clinicians will give sicker patients fluid more quickly, perhaps. They conclude that if the relationship between timing of delivery of the bundle and survival is causal, then prompt recognition and faster treatment of sepsis may save lives. Now that seems reasonable. It would have been a fascinating addition to this analysis if data preceding the 2013 bundle was obtained. If a baseline audit period had been conducted, we would have seen if mandated care had resulted in changes in the recognition of sepsis, the delivery of components and outcome. Let's stick with this state effect of changes in sepsis management and look at association between US nor epinephrine shortage and mortality among patients with septic shock, published in JAMA. So in February 2011, the US Food and Drug Administration announced a severe nationwide shortage of norepinephrine caused by production interruptions at three drug manufacturers and this persisted until February 2012, so for a year. Was there an association between this shortage and mortality among adults with septic shock? This study reports on a large nationally representative database of hospitalized patients in the US and the associations between the shortage, use of alternative vasopressors, and mortality among patients with septic shock. So adult patients with septic shock were defined as meeting criteria for severe sepsis using a previously validated algorithm that uses a combination of ICD-9 codes, a diagnosis of acute organ dysfunction, with the addition of the use of any five vasopressors, NORAD, phenylephrine, dopamine, epinephrine and vasopressin for two or more days during hospital admission. Vasopressor use was defined as any daily pharmacy charge for a given vasopressor and the cohort was restricted to patients who received vasopressor treatment for two or more days to exclude patients with infection and organ dysfunction who might have received only brief infusions of vasopressors. The study was divided into quarter year periods. The baseline period was the first eight quarters from July 08 through to June 10. The, there was a primary hospital cohort during the norepinephrine shortage for the four quarters of the calendar year 2011 and there was a post norepinephrine shortage period from 2012 to June 2013. To evaluate potential factors and outcomes associated with the norepinephrine shortage, the primary analysis cohort focused on 1. A relative decrease by more than 20% in norepinephrine use from baseline in at least one quarter. 2. A return to norepinephrine use rates to within 10% of the baseline rate by the second quarter of 2012. 3. No more than one quarter of norepinephrine use that was more than 20% below baseline 
before or after 2011. 4. Hospitals with norepinephrine use that did not decrease by more than 20% in any quarter of 2011 were designated as consistent use hospitals and used for comp comparison with shortage hospitals in a secondary difference in differences analysis. What did they find? In 27,000 odd patients with septic shock admitted to 26 hospitals, phenylephrine use significantly increased during three-month periods of active norepinephrine shortage. This was characterized by in the 26 shortage hospitals that the baseline matching of septic shock patients during the shortage quarters versus the non-shortage quarters was similar although there was a 2% difference in the medical versus surgical mix. Norepinephrine use decreased from 80 to 50%, phenylephrine increased from 37 to 55%, dopamine increased from 41 to 49%, and vasopressin increased from 26 to 32%. Epinephrine didn't change. ICU and hospital length of stay did not change between the shortage quarters versus the non-shortage quarters and in-hospital mortality increased from 36 to 40 percent in the shortage quarters. The comparison of consistent use hospitals revealed the relationship between norepinephrine use and mortality was robust to adjustment for secular trends, that is the decrease in mortality year on year. So overall the US norepinephrine shortage was significantly associated with increased mortality among patients with septic shock. This could be interpreted as evidence of the efficacy and superiority of norepinephrine due to inherent drug features or uh, dexterity in using it. It could also be due to other factors that come into play when there is a shortage, that is we change our behaviour in an unmeasured manner that alters outcome when we know we have restricted access to a first-line medication. It is an interesting study provides a great springboard for discussion and suggests that shortages that disrupt normal behaviour can place patients at risk. So let's continue with the third sepsis trial, the ATHOS-3 study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, angiotensin II for the treatment of vasodilatory shock. So is there something other than catecholamines or vasopressin for vasodilatory shock? What about manipulating the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system? So this prospective RCT assigned 344 patients with vasodilatory shock who were requiring more than 0.2 mics per kilo minutes of norepinephrine or an equivalent for at least six hours to receive infusion of angiotensin II or placebo. They excluded patients who had greater than 20% burns, acute coronary syndromes, bronchospasm, liver failure, mesenteric ischemia, active bleeding, AAA, VA ECMO or high dose glucocorticoids. The study was conducted in 75 ICUs in North America, Australasia or Europe and they found that the study groups were well matched at baseline with sepsis the cause of shock in 81% and the Apache 2 score enrollment at 28, so pretty sick. The primary endpoint, significantly more patients in the angiotensin 2 group met the criteria for the primary endpoint, which was response 
with respect to mean arterial pressure at hour 3 so 70% versus 23% p-value of less than 0.001 odds ratio of 7.95 the most common reason for lack of response was failure to achieve a mean arterial pressure of greater than or equal to 75 millimeters of mercury or an increase in 10 millimeters of mercury during the first three hours, the angiotensin II group had a significantly greater increase in mean arterial pressure, 12.5 versus 3 millimeters of mercury. The mean arterial pressure increased rapidly, allowing the angiotensin II dose to be decreased from the original 20 nanograms per kilo per minute in 67% of the patients uh, and allowed a concomitant decrease in uh, other vasopressors. During the first 48 hours, mean doses of background vasopressors were consistently less in the angiotensin group and heart rates were higher in the angiotensin group. At 48 hours, improvement in the cardiovascular SOFA score was significantly greater in the angiotensin 2 group and there were no significant differences in other SOFA score components. In multivariate analysis, after adjustment for pre-specified stratification variables, treatment assignment, that is angiotensin 2 versus placebo, was the most significant positive predictor of a response with respect to mean arterial pressure, odds ratio 12.4. Adverse events of any grade were reported in 87% of the angiotensin patients, 92% of the placebo patients. Serious adverse events were reported in 61% of angiotensin patients and 67% of placebo. The rates of adverse events of special interest were similar in the angiotensin 2 and placebo groups, specifically rates of tachyarrhythmias, distal ischemia, VT and AF were similar. Death from any cause by day 7 occurred in 29% in the angiotensin group and 35% in the placebo group has its ratio 0.78, 95% confidence intervals of 0.53 to 1.16, so not significant. And death by day 28 occurred in 46 versus 54%, again not significant, although a big absolute difference. So overall this RCT reported angiotensin 2 infusion compared to placebo was associated with improved MAP in 3 hours in patients with vasodilatory shock requiring high-dose vasopressors. In addition, angiotensin II patients had lower catecholamine requirements and lower cardiovascular SOFA scores. So from here, larger trials with longer duration of follow-up and clinical or patient-centered outcomes are warranted to establish if this is a clinically useful alternative to conventional vasopressors. So this is a really interesting future development. So let's move away from sepsis and onto fluids, crystalloids actually. So we have firstly in critical care medicine, sodium bicarbonate versus sodium chloride for preventing contrast associated acute kidney injury in critically ill patients. This prospective multi-center French RCT, the Hydrorea study, tests the hypothesis that bicarbonate is superior to isotonic saline at prevention of contrast-associated AKI in critical illness. What did they do? Adults with stable renal function admitted to ICU who underwent imaging 
with intravascular contrast medium and had an expected ICU length of stay of more than 48 hours were randomized to saline or 1.4% sodium bicarbonate. Both were given as 500ml bottles with 3ml per kilo given in the first hours then 1ml per kilo for 6 hours after contrast exposure. They assumed a 15% incidence of acute kidney injury and a 10% absolute difference in incidence with intervention. So they required 300 patients. At baseline, the characteristics were similar, except there were more nephrotoxic agents used in the saline group. Um, 80% were ventilated, 33% on vasopressors. The intervention, the serum bicarbonate, the urinary pH, was similar at randomization and a median amount of 700 mils of study fluid was given. The urinary pH was significantly higher in the bicarb group than in the saline group, which is not surprising. It shows that the drug got delivered. The primary outcome, well, development of AKI as defined by an increase in serum creatinine equal or more than to 0.3 milligrams per deciliter or a 50% increase compared with the inclusion serum creatinine or a urinary output of less than 0.5 mils per kilo per hour for six hours within 72 hours after contrast exposure. So that primary outcome development of AKI occurred in 33% of the saline and 35% of the bicarb, an absolute difference of minus 1.8, p-value of 0.8. That didn't change with subgroup and sensitivity analysis. Secondary outcomes, Renal replacement therapy wasn't different. ICU length of stay wasn't different. ICU mortality wasn't different. So overall, this study reports that about one in three patients in ICU having contrast develop acute kidney injury. Only one in 10 require renal replacement therapy. And that six hours of bicarbonate doesn't change this. Uh, it does make the urine more alkaline. Maybe there are some assumptions that require challenging. Firstly, is contrast-associated acute kidney injury and entity in ICU? So did these patients develop AKI due to contrast or would it have happened anyway? Secondary, does contrast-associated acute kidney injury contribute to morbidity and mortality or is it a minor contributor to the bigger causes of acute kidney injury? There have been other articles suggesting this. Um, and I guess the third one is, does saline or bicarbonate make a difference? Does it matter about dose and volume? So the other study that looked at crystalloids was the for, by the SALT investigators, and that was balanced crystalloids versus saline in the intensive care unit, the SALT randomized trial published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. So in this pilot, cluster randomized multiple crossover trial, they described the outcomes of 974 adults admitted to a single ICU in a four-month period in 2015 with monthly alternating saline versus balanced crystalloid at a unit level. They described software tools built into the electronic health record to automatically enroll, steer ordering providers to the correct or assigned crystalloid and collect data. In terms of the characteristics, the patients were similar at baseline. They received similar volumes of crystalloid in the first 30 days. And of note, at enrollment, only 34% were ventilated, 24% were receiving vasopressors, and 19% had acute kidney injury. 
the primary outcome was difference in proportion of isotonic crystalloid administered that was saline uh, compared to that was uh, balanced. And that was 90% versus 21%. Secondary outcomes, the major adverse kidney events within 30 days, which they call the MAKE30 outcome, a composite of death, dialysis or persistent renal dysfunction. And that was about 24.5% in both groups. And in subgroup analysis, patients receiving higher volumes of fluid, a higher incidence of the MAKE30 outcome was observed in the saline group. So in high volume fluid patients, there was more adverse events with the saline group. So why include this study? Well, look, primarily it tells us that it is possible to use a software tool to run a fluid trial and deliver very effective treatment separation. And for those units involved in high volume feeding or fluid or blood trials, this could be a really helpful trial management strategy. So on its own, that, that makes this study a bit interesting. Um, the secondary issue is about the actual trial question. Does balanced crystalloid reduce acute kidney injury? The simple answer in this study is no, although it is only a pilot. And this dose response effect seen in the higher volume fluid patients may be enough to stimulate larger trials. I guess we'll wait and see. Okay, let's go to JAMA and a different subject. This is effect of home non-invasive ventilation with oxygen therapy versus oxygen therapy alone on a hospital readmission or death after an acute COPD exacerbation. So COPD is a disease that involves recurrent exacerbations with the risk of hospitalization and ventilatory support. An unresolved question is, does the addition of home non-invasive ventilation to home oxygen therapy prolong times of readmission or death for patients with COPD and persistent hypercapnia following a life-threatening exacerbation? So they recruited 116 patients from 13 centres in the UK. They had to be admitted to hospital with acute decompensated hypercapnic COPD and require NIV as part of that index admission, have at least two weeks of resolution of their decompensated acidosis, but be within four weeks of attaining clinical stability. They had to have persistent hypercapnia, CO2 greater than 53, and hypoxemia, PO2 of um, less than 55, and then a few other things, or greater than one of polycythemia, poly pulmonary hypertension or core pulmonar um, and they had to have an arterial pH that was greater than 7.3 while breathing room air. So patients were excluded if they were not assessed within the four weeks of resolution of index COPD exacerbation, if they required intubation during their index exacerbation, were currently using NIV at home, had cognitive or psychiatric morbidity, were dialyzed and or if they had active unstable uh, ischemic heart disease. They were randomized to NIV, which could be nasal, oronasal or face mask, plus oxygen versus oxygen alone. Um, they had this process of acclimatizing them to NIV during the day, then nocturnal titration with oxygen and trained at the daytime prescription rate. And the aim was to achieve control of nocturnal hypoventilation with a high pressure ventilation strategy. For both groups, uh, oxygen was initiated at the lowest flow rate to increase PO2 to 
greater than 60 without decompensating arterial pH on morning blood gas. And they were all instructed to use oxygen at least 15 hours per day. All patients had optimised medical management according to the British Thoracic Society recommendations of triple inhaled bronchodilator therapy, um, etc. Sputum clearance, all that stuff. What do they report? Well, at baseline, the patients were 67 with a BMI of 22, 70% had prior home oxygen use, 53% had greater than 3 COPD hospital admissions in the prior year, FEV1 was 0.6, FEC 1.7, room air PO2 of 48, CO2 59, pH of 7.4. So that's what they looked like at baseline. Um, in terms of therapy, there was no difference between groups for oxygen. They get a one liter, one liter per minute at home. Uh, and the median home ventilator settings were in inspiratory peak pressure of 24 centimeters, expiratory of 4 centimeters, backup rate of 14, and they used it 4.7 hours per night at the six-week mark, and by 12 months they were using it 7.6 hours per night. Now the, the primary outcome, time to hospital readmission after that acute exacerbation, was 4.3 months for oxygen plus NIV compared to 1.4 months for oxygen alone. 12-month readmission or death, 63% for NIV, 80% for oxygen alone, 95% uh, adjusted hazard ratio 0.49, um, 95% confidence intervals of 0.3 to 0.77, p-value of 0.002. Secondary outcomes, there's no difference in all-cause mortality. Um, the COPD exacerbation rate was less with the NIV group, 3.8 per annum compared to 5.1 in the oxygen. Um, and their health-related quality of life was better at six and th weeks and three months in the NIV group, but no different thereafter. So the addition of home non-invasive ventilation to home oxygen therapy might improve outcomes, particularly readmission rate, in the 12 months after hospital admission for severe COPD and persistent hypercapnia. The accompanying editorial discusses the contradictory results of preceding studies, the difficulty in blinding, the failure to address the overlap of sleep apnea and COPD. So why does this study report benefit when prior studies have not? They point out that it may be the forced two-week period of recovery prior to enrolment, ensuring patients with more severe uh, exacerbations recover. And this is an important study overall as it helps better define a population that may benefit from home NIV in addition to oxygen. And I guess it may affect what we see presented or see after resolution of exacerbation in the intensive care unit. Okay, let's move away from home COPD back into the heavy intensive care stuff. And in the New England Journal of Medicine, we had bystander efforts and one-year outcomes in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So does bystander CPR affect long-term neurological recovery? This analysis of the Denmark nationwide out-of-hospital cardiac arrest database sets out to answer this by examining the association between bystander CPR and anoxic brain damage from ICD-10 D codes or nursing home admission and of death from any cause among patients who survived to day 30. They report that during the study period from 2001 
to 2012, there were 42,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. 30-day survival increased from 4% to 12.5% during the study period. The cohort analysed in this study, the 2,800 patients who survived to 30 days, are presented by baseline variable categorised as no bystander CPR, bystander CPR, bystander defibrillation, EMS witnessed or unknown. Overall, the bystander CPR group were younger, more likely to be male, had lower comorbidities and more likely to have a shockable rhythm. In the 30-day survivor group, 9.7% died during the subsequent year and 10% had brain damage or nursing home admission. During the period from 2001 to 2012, the rates of bystander CPR and bystander defibrillation increased significantly among the 30-day survivors. During the same interval, the proportion of 30-day survivors with anoxic brain damage diagnosed or admitted to nursing home during the subsequent year, as well as the proportion who died during one year of follow-up, decreased significantly. In adjusted analyses, bystander CPR and defibrillation were both associated with significantly lower risk of anoxic brain damage or nursing home admission than no bystander resuscitation. Sensitivity analysis performed with the use of multiple imputation to account for missing data, analysis by cause of death, revealed similar results. The absolute one-year risk of anoxic brain damage or nursing home admission was lowest in the group with EMS witness cardiac arrest. The lowest absolute one-year risk of death was seen in the bystander defib group. The no bystander resuscitation group had the highest risk of anoxic brain damage or nursing home admission or death from any cause. These results were consistent when multiple imputation methods were applied across groups defined according to age, sex, child and comorbidity index score, among survivors with cardiac arrest of presumed cardiac courses and witnessed cardiac arrest, and among survivors who received defibrillation in a pre-hospital setting. So overall, this comprehensive national registry study of the association between bystander CPR or defibrillation and long-term neurological outcomes after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest tell us that outcomes have improved over time but remain sobering. A rough calculation suggests about 8% of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients are alive and don't have anoxic brain injury at one year. Early resuscitative efforts by bystanders are associated with a lower one-year risk of anoxic brain damage or nursing home admission supporting the view that bystander interventions can improve functional outcomes and strategies that help bystanders initiate CPR and facilitate public access to automated external defibrillators may be of benefit. So this is a really important, impressive study. Okay, let's move away from CPR and into predicting prognosis published in JAMA. The discriminative accuracy of physician and nurse predictions for survival and functional outcomes six months after an ICU admission. So this is a simple question. Can physicians and nurses accurately predict six-month mortality and functional outcomes of critically ill patients? So why is this important, firstly? 
Well, knowledge of future function may be very important to ICU patients, their families and clinicians. This is particularly true as increasing numbers of patients survive the ICU but experience long-term impairments in cognition and overall function. Multidisciplinary family meetings commonly focus on function and quality of life. Predictions of future function may influence clinician behaviour as physicians are more likely to offer the withdrawal of life support when they believe the patient will experience future dysfunction. And recent qualitative work has highlighted a central tension for ICU clinicians between their professional responsibility to discuss likely functional outcomes versus the uncertainty about their ability to predict those outcomes for an individual patient. In this prospective cohort study of 303 critically ill patients who were ventilated for more than 48 consecutive hours and or had vasoactive infusions for 24 consecutive hours were enrolled in the study and their attending physician and bedside ICU nurse were also uh, enrolled on the uh, recruited into the study. Health professionals were asked to predict six outcomes within 24 hours of enrollment. Hospital survival, six months survival, return to original residence, ability to toilet independently, ability to ambulate up 10 stairs independently, ability to remember most things, think clearly and solve day-to-day -day problems, sort of cognitive function. Uh, they were, clinicians were required to provide a dichotomous prediction of whether the outcome would be achieved and then to state their confidence in each prediction using a five-point Leichhardt scale. And these predictions were made within 24 hours of enrolment. The results, patient outcomes, 94% lived at home before and 81% could ambulate up 10 stairs, 88% could toilet independently, 83% had normal cognition, 57% were alive at six months, and functional outcomes were verified in about 50%. Physicians most accurately predicted six-month mortality, um, positive likelihood of 5.9, negative likelihood ratio of 0.4, and least accurately predicted cognition. Nurses' predictions were similar or a bit less accurate. Intensive care unit physicians and nurses' discriminative accuracy in predicting six-month outcomes of critically ill patients varied depending on the outcome being predicted and the confidence of the predictor. And the authors discussed some important points. Firstly, physicians aggregate predictions of in-hospital mortality and six-month mortality and return to original residence by six months and cognitive and functional outcomes at six months were all better than chance. But they were typically modest for unselected patients. Similar results were found among nurses, except their predictions of cognition were no better than chance. Thus, when relying such predictions at the bedside, it is important that we acknowledge our uncertainty. For the approximately one half of general ICU patients for whom ICU physician and nurses formed confident predictions, the discriminative accuracy of these predictions appeared to improve considerably. However, this should be interpreted with caution as confidence intervals were wide. Of note, when ICU doctors and nurses agree and are unconfident and are confident, the predictive value is maximized. This suggests a multidisciplinary discussion, discussion of prognosis may be better. Thirdly, 
Clinician prognostic accuracy varied amongst the outcomes. That is, they were better at predicting six-month mortality and toileting independence and least accurate at predicting cognition. So to my mind, this is a cautionary tale. We are not that great at predicting long-term outcomes. We should share our uncertainty and seek concordance with colleagues. We should be cautious with our confidence at predicting the future. Let's stick with JAMA and go to something very trial-like. The effect of dexmedetomidine on mortality in ventilator-free days in patients requiring mechanical ventilation with sepsis. With Dahlia complete, SPICE ongoing, MENS subgroup suggesting benefit, the role of dexmedetomidine in critical illness sedation remains a hot topic. This study aims to answer the question, does a sedation strategy with dexmedetomidine compared to with no dexmedetomidine improve ventilator-free days and mortality among patients with sepsis requiring ventilation. 201 adults with sepsis requiring mechanical ventilation for at least 24 hours in eight ICUs in Japan were randomized to dex versus no dex as well as other sedatives. The results at baseline they were well matched. The primary outcome Dexmedetomidine did not significantly improve either of the co-primary outcomes, the VFDs, 20 versus 18 days, or 28-day mortality, 23 versus 31% hazard ratio of 0.69. Secondary outcomes, SOFA scores at days 1, 2, 4, 6, 8, occurrence of delirium and coma, intensive care unit stay, duration, renal function, inflammation, nutrition didn't differ. The dexmedetomidine group had a higher rate of well-controlled sedation during mechanical ventilation. So, treatment with dexmedetomidine in patients with sepsis did not improve either ventilator-free days or 28-day mortality. The 8% difference in mortality was not significant. The study was not powered for that. So, before we adopt a widespread use of dexmedetomidine as a first-line sedative in ventilated critically ill patients, we should wait for more evidence. Okay, let's finish up with ECMO. In the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we have a review of VV ECMO over the last 50 years. And it certainly has taken off, particularly in the last decade, due to technology changes, Caesar, and influenza. This article reviews the current knowledge of the physiology, rationale, and results of historical and more recent studies of extracorporeal gas exchange in patients with ARDS. It underlines the need for careful patient selection and management and optimised centre organisation and discusses what might be future indications of the technique apart from rescuing patients with lung failure refractory to conventional treatment. They cover the function of the membrane oxygenator, how membrane lungs can support gas exchange, the historical studies of extracorporeal gas exchange in patients with ARDS, the more recent studies in patients with ARDS and Caesar, the H1N1 epidemic and the effect that had. The, they discuss the rationale for applying uh, ECCO2 removal or VV ECMO to patients with ARDS in 2017. 
They talk about ECLS as a rescue therapy for severe hypoxemia or hypercapnia not responding to maximized conventional ventilatory treatment. They talk about ECLS to minimize and abolish ventilator-induced lung injury in the current state of evidence and the trials that are coming up. They talk about patient management under ECMO, um, the best configuration, ventilation strategy, neuromuscular blockers, anticoagulation, waking, rehab. And they talk about center organization for successful ECMO programs, minimum program, volume to be safe, audit and support networks, retrieval systems. ECMO is in a renaissance period and much remains unknown. We need to learn more, study more and be careful. This is a really good review article if you want to learn more and I suggest uh, if that's the case you should either come to the site and read the whole review or read the actual paper itself. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club for April, May 2017. Come to the site and have a look around. Otherwise, we'll see you in a month. Thank you.